Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 28, The Flight of the Prince. Harry felt as though he too were hurtling through space. It had not happened. It could not have happened. Out of here, quickly, said Snape. He seized Malfoy by the scruff of the neck and forced him through the door ahead of the rest. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, Matt, thank you so much for coming back into the studio today. Yes, I am back. You are back because I decided that today we're discussing the theme of perfection. So I decided to demonstrate for everybody what imperfection is. And I forgot to hit record on our audio when we recorded last week. I remember that. You remember? Well, I remember a a riveting and fascinating and stimulating conversation. Between you, me, and Casper. And Casper. Casper was part of it. But instead, what people are going to get is you and I (laughs) re-recording. Just the two of us. Because Casper is now traveling. Right. So you're welcome, everyone. You don't have to hear that annoying British accent. Or my first attempt at a 30-second recap. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, before we knew that I was going to live an example of the irony of perfection, we invited you in to tell a story on the theme of perfection. What story do you have for us today? So the weekend before I was ordained a priest, I was packing to drive back to Michigan from Boston and I, I wouldn't say I had a panic attack, but I started to freak out a little bit. And basically, I couldn't pack my bag. I just kept walking back and forth from my bag to my closet. And my wife, Colette, noticed that something was up in the bedroom. And so she came in and asked me what was going on. And it took me a second to kind of register why I was feeling paralyzed. But I said to her, I am not the man I thought I would be by this day, that I had spent a lot of my life 
imagining that I would one day be be a priest. And I had imagined the kind of person I would be by the time I became that, and I wasn't that yet. And I told her, I feel like I've tricked everybody, that they think I'm somebody that I'm not, that they think I've achieved some state of kind of spiritual wholeness or completion, and when I'm just the same schmuck I was two days ago, two years ago, whatever. And Colette, who was very wise, looked at me very lovingly and said, Maddie, you're not fooling anybody. (laughs) They know exactly who you are. They know your gifts. They also know your faults. But they have decided that they want this for you and want you for this. And that was exactly what I needed to hear, I think, because especially in our religious traditions, but I think just in in our lives, that we have this pressure towards perfection, pressure to to be something that we are not, to grow into something that we're not. And it's rare but precious when someone says to us, you're exactly what we need, just you as you are, warts and all. And that's what Colette said to me, and that's what got me to continue packing my bag so we could head home to Michigan. Yeah, I think that to a much lesser extent that we all think that, right, that there's a perfect version of ourselves that we will one day be. I mean, to a much less extent, but I remember saying I was like 15 or 16 and I was still going to my pediatrician and I had sort of bruises all over my body. And she was like, Vanessa, are you okay? And I was like, oh yeah, I just like bang into things all the time. One day I won't. And she was like, no, you always will. You know, at 15 or 16, I just had this vision of myself that I'd be 37 years old one day and like not spill on myself. And then I think so much of becoming an adult is realizing that those imperfections, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, makes you perfectly who you are. So, Matt, you are going to do a 30-second recap, but I will model for you a perfect 30-second recap first. You're going to go first? Great. Can you say on your mark, get set, go to me? I can. Thank you. Vanessa, on your mark, get set. Go. So Harry unfreezes and he realizes that it's probably because Dumbledore is dead and Snape grabs Draco and they run and they are trying to run to apparate off of campus. And Harry runs through a battle and he sees Ginny and he protects her and McGonagall is fighting and Lupin is fighting and Tonks is fighting and he has to like and Neville's on the floor and it's terrible. And then Harry and Snape have this big confrontation. Oh, my God. And Snape is like, I'm the half blood prince. And then Hagrid, they put out the thing and they go and Dumbledore is dead and Hagrid realizes it, too. I just got lost in the detail in my head. It happened. That happened to me last time. I remember. What do you mean last time? This is the first time we're recording. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. I am glad that audio no longer exists or never existed, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it existed once, like live. It was spoken live and then into the ether, like all the people we love. <laughs> okay, Matt, are you ready okay. to try? Not really, but I'm, I'm ready to try. Yes. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So uh, Dumbledore is dead. Hagrid jumps over Death Eater's body, runs down the stairs. Not Dumbledore. Ha- Harry jumps over Death Eater's body, runs down the stairs, uh, sees a battle, steps in something squishy, goes out. Snape's trying to ap- disapparate. Uh, they get into a fight. Snape won't let him cast an unforgivable curse. And then uh, Hagrid's house is on fire and Buckbeak comes and he does disapparate. And then they put, uh, put out the house with an umbrella and Hagrid doesn't believe Dumbledore is dead. They go back. Dumbledore is dead. And the Horcrux is not a Horcrux. I at first thought you weren't doing very well, but you got to some really important I things that pulled I, it, I I gave up on the detail and just kind of went for a couple of things I felt like it needed to be said. Like the Horcrux is not a the Horcrux. The Horcrux not being real. Yes, I feel like that's a big thing. Yeah. So let's actually start there. Yeah. I sort of love that the Horcrux isn't actually a Horcrux. I mean, I don't know if I love it. I think there's something almost 
exquisitely sort of despairing in that. Like you're at a point where you think things can get no worse. When Harry is looking at Dumbledore's body, he's actually thinking like this is as bad as it gets. Except, oh, by the way, it gets worse. Yeah, I love how despairing it is. I think that's what yeah, I meant I when I true. said I love yes. it. Yes. Yes, right. I hadn't read book six in a couple of years. And so I, I really forgot how vividly it's written where not only do you think that maybe it's a real horcrux, you think that it's perhaps broken. And I just remembered thinking, oh, Dumbledore's death was so catastrophic that it was able to destroy this horcrux. So upon reading it on the first time, I thought that Dumbledore's death was immediately given this like beautiful meaning of like at least something sort of good came from even this fall. And then that it's the opposite, that it's like not only is it not destroyed, it's not even what we thought it was. To me was this like perfect encapsulation of what that moment of grief is, right, where you can't even see that it will ever end. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you and I have both served as chaplains, right? And in in my own training to become a chaplain, become a priest, you know, you walk into a hospital room and there's something wrong. And my instinct, my urge is, okay, I need to say the thing to fix it. I need to say the right thing to make it all better. And that is always the wrong thing to say. There is no right thing to say to make it better because to believe that something you could say could make it better is to misunderstand what's actually going on in front of you. The harder thing and the thing that we're actually called to in these moments, I think, is to like just be there and let it be broken. I mean, you imagine that room. Everybody who has a solution has already walked out. But the people who have things that they can actually do, when they've run out of things to do, they walk out and you as the chaplain walk in. And actually, you mentioned Hagrid, right? In your 30-second recap, I find Hagrid's and Harry's friendship very beautiful and moments. And in this moment, when Harry knows that Dumbledore is dead, but does not try to persuade Hagrid, knows what Hagrid is walking towards, and walks there with him. That kind of companionship and loss, where you don't need to fix it for the other person, you just are willing to stand there with them. I, I mean, if we're talking about perfection in the wake of brokenness, there's something perfectly patient and even pastoral in just his willingness not to convince, not to say anything, just to be there for what Hagrid's about to go through. It is such a religious moment. Harry tries three times to tell Hagrid. He repeats it three times, and each time Hagrid says no. Which, you know, in Judaism, I'm sure that there are more examples of this, but in Judaism, like, if you want to convert, you have to ask three times, right? There's a lot about trying something three times. And Hagrid's saying no the third time. That is when Harry is like, okay, well, we should put out your house, which seems like the exact right thing to do when you can't convince someone of something. And there's a practical element to the ritual. Hagrid's house is on fire, but... I just loved that Hagrid can't remember the spell. So he's like, come on, it's Aguamente. And they stand there and just like do this really practical, beautiful thing where they are facing something else together before they go and actually confront Dumbledore's death. I mean, I feel like there's two religious moments in that exchange. And one is what I would call like bad religion. <laughs> and the other is what I think is the best of what religion can be when it lives up to what it can be, right? Which is that Hagrid's denial is almost religious. It is not cognitively possible for him to imagine a world where Dumbledore is dead. And so he doesn't. And so that's what I would call sort of like bad religion. There's that religious denial. Like, nope, the truth does not fit with my view of the world. And so I deny it, right? But Harry's patience with that 
and the willingness to address the kind of aftermath of the loss, which is this burning house, and the willingness to kind of stand with the person who is in crisis, even while you yourself are in crisis, because you know at least that this still has value, that this whatever else is lost, that the two of us here mean something and we're going to take care of each other in the wake of it. To me, that that's the best of what what we can be and also what our religions and our spiritual traditions and our literary traditions can call us to. Yeah, I love that. I think that there are times in my life where I will say, well, I'm the one dealing with the bigger trauma right now, so I don't care about yours. There are times in your life when you think you'd say that? When I think that. Really? Where I'm like, you think that's a problem? I'm dealing with X. For an example, when I was sick, if a student came to me and was like, I don't know which class to choose, I was like, right, but I feel like I'm dying. Would you say that to the person? No, but I, I, but in my heart and mind, I was like, I don't care. This is but not tell, a real problem. But tell me what you did with that student when I'm this happened. I'm sure I like pretended to be a decent advisor. Fake but... it till you make it. I'm serious. <laughs> like, sure. this is the point. Harry is in despair, right? Harry has, knows this loss is real. This is active inside his body. Outwardly, Hagrid doesn't recognize it. Hagrid just sees his buddy Harry helping him put out his house fire. But I think what I love about what you're saying is that the greatest way to take care of ourselves is to take care of somebody else. And so that whenever I have that instinct in myself to be like, no, actually, like you will feel better if you pay attention to this other person's like dumb problem about which math class to take. And that that problem isn't actually dumb. It's human and it's life. Right. So you're calling me to be a better version of myself. But this is, again, the, the thing about perfection, right? That none of us are perfect. The only people we have available to minister to others are broken people who are dealing with their own crises and traumas and losses. These are the gifts that we have to care for each other. To me, what's really beautiful about that moment is how broken Harry is. And he still is able to be fully present to Hagrid. And he, like, puts his hand on Fang yeah. and is like, oh, you're alive, right? Yeah. Like. There's yeah. something very tactile yeah. about it. So, Matt, I'm not sure how this is about perfection, but maybe you can help me make it about perfection. I just want to rail against injustice of systems and failures of systems. But Hagrid has now been proven innocent for the crime that took his wand and his youth and his education away from him 50 years ago. And he still has this frickin' umbrella wand I understand that once we falsely accuse someone, like, you can never make that whole, right? There's no restitution that can give people years back of their lives that they spent in prison. There's nothing you can do. But you can do things like give them back their voting rights. The fact that Hagrid has not officially been given back a wand just enraged me in this moment. Can you make that about perfection so I can talk about it in this chapter? I think I can make it about perfection. I think that within the world of the story, you're right. But as a reader from the outside, to me, it perfectly encapsulates. This is like the lesson for what's to come. The world is burning. All we have are imperfect tools. Get to it, right? Like that he does not have a real wand, that he only has this umbrella, <laughs> which is this imperfect tool. I mean, the crisis is the crisis you have. The tools you have are the tools you have. The fact that you do not have the right tools for the job does not absolve you of the responsibility to get to work fighting the fire. And it feels like that is just the lesson of the rest of the series. And it's also like our world, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like we do not have easy access to the tools to fix the problems we face. 
but they are the tools we have, and so we better get to work, right? This feels like a systemic oppression that happened to him, and I feel like it's always the most marginalized people who are constantly talking about how you don't need the right tools. I'm not trying to justify the system, right? Like I said, I think that within the world of the story, there's no reason why it shouldn't be the case that he should have his wand restored. We just need more ceremonies of restitution. I agree. As soon as you realize that someone was falsely accused of something, they should get like a wedding. Yes, but also like, I mean, even restitution beyond that. I mean, the fact that people who have been in prison in many states are not allowed to vote anymore to me is like either there's a penalty that ends or you change the penalty, right? Like this is, yes, I agree. Of course, I agree. So this wand just like brought up to me all of the ways that we fail to like make perfect what we have broken. Yes, absolutely. That we don't even try to fix the things that we have broken. We're just like, whoops, broke it and walk away. I mean, partly true, but I also think that what trying to break the system apart looks like is them using the tools they have to tear it down, right? And so they're starting where they are, which is we have this umbrella and we have that fire. Oh, there's totally something. I'm not judging Hagrid. No, no, I know. I just feel like I think this is sort of this is the way the rest of the series is going to look. We're, we only have umbrellas. We only have umbrellas. I mean, we only have teenagers who can like, yeah, exactly. miss school to strike. That's, That's all right. we have. I mean, I had a student actually stop me in the hallway last week, and the student was sort of in crisis, saying, like, I, I can't figure out how to be in the world without participating in some harm. Tell me how to be in the world without participating in some harm, or at least tell me how I can rid myself absolve myself or cleanse myself of the guilt of living like this. And the only answer I had was, you can. (laughs) We have to learn to have some peace with our brokenness, but not let it keep us from from doing what we can to try to make the world better, right? It's the umbrella wand. All of us are umbrella wands. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. 
So Matt, one other moment of perfection that I want us to talk about is Snape finally being able to reveal himself as the half-blood prince to Harry. The only way that I can see Snape as perfect in these books is actually sort of similar to the way that you were describing Hagrid, that Snape is a perfect follower of Dumbledore. And when Dumbledore has not given him specific instructions, he is sort of an immature, bad version of himself. So he is able to kill Dumbledore because Dumbledore told him, right, in order to protect Draco. He is able to protect Harry enough and keep Harry alive enough. And in book seven, we know that he will continue to do that. But when he hasn't been given strict instructions by Dumbledore, we see that he is just this, like, broken, bitter man. And I'm wondering what you think of that theory. You know, we've actually talked about this ourselves, Vanessa, but I find Snape really frustrating in that scene with Harry because when he won't let Harry cast an unforgivable curse, I mean, that's Snape being like kind of the same thing he's doing for Malfoy. Like, I'm not going to let this person harm himself spiritually or morally. I'm going to protect this child from himself, you know? But then Snape collapses into sort of when he gets a schoolboy taunt from Harry, all this benevolence of his double agents here or whatever just kind of falls apart into him reverting into his own insecurities or appearing to revert into his own insecurities. I thought, yeah, he's persuasive. He's persuasive as a, a very bitter and broken person. But I guess there's just that one moment. And maybe this is the way I, sh- I should read Snape instead, which is that even those of us who are broken, maybe irretrievably broken, can have moments of perfect grace or whatever, which is that I may be wrong, but I don't think Dumbledore ever said to Snape, don't let Harry ever cast an unforgivable curse. And I might be wrong. Maybe maybe Snape is not letting Harry cast the curse because he's trying to show how much stronger he is than Harry. But no, because he could, there's something about him not even letting him say the words. It's not like he's fending off the attacks. He's actually not letting Harry finish speaking, even as imperfect a character as he is, that he can at moments do exactly the right thing. Come out of himself, come out of that brokenness and do even just for a moment, like the one thing which saves Harry from himself. I love that reading of Snape, that everybody has that possibility of grace within them. Before we get into this Florilegia, I just want to offer a trigger warning that Matt and I are going to talk about suicide. And so if that is something that you feel like you need to skip, join us again at the voicemail. So Matt, we are now going to do the Christian reading practice of Florilegia. And so you and I have each pick a quote that sparkled at us from this chapter, and we are going to read them in conversation with each other. So what quote did you pick? I feel like sparkle is the wrong verb. Stuck out. Yes. The line that stuck out for me is when Harry is running after Snape and uh, we read, his feet met something squashy and slippery on the floor. Yummy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So my quote that sparkled at me, kill me then, panted Harry, who felt no fear at all, but only rage and contempt. So, Matt, why did that quote stick out to you? What do you like about that quote? I mean, on first glance, it stood out to me just because 
You know, I don't find J.K. Rowling to be an especially florid writer. I mean, she's concerned more with plot than prose, I find. But there's something about like the squashy and slippery, which is just very sort of descriptive in a fully realizing way. Like you can just get a sense for what's going on in that space as he's running with just those two words, which is just great writing. So that was the first reason it stuck out to me. The second thing was just sort of that death and loss and violence are material things. Like it's not just like this spiritual problem that the way we've been talking about it maybe in this episode, but it's also about like just stuff like matter, blood and guts and something squashy and slippery. Like, and it's just, again, just very descriptive and illuminating. So, so what sparkled in your line, Vanessa? What sparkled in my line is really that this is the first moment where it strikes me that Harry doesn't value his own life. We know that he is willing to be reckless in all sorts of ways, but this is the first moment where he seems really entirely willing to die. And, you know, the fact that he's consumed entirely by rage and contempt rather than any will to live was really striking to me and I think a big change in Harry. And I think it demonstrates to me that we're just like all capable of getting there. And I think the more important thing that it demonstrates to me is actually something sort of optimistic, which is that it passes and how scary it is that we can do something reckless in this moment, like taunt someone into making what would be a passing moment a permanent mistake. Let's now read our two beautiful sentences together (laughs) as if they were one. His feet met something squashy and slippery on the floor. Kill me then, panted Harry, who felt no fear at all, but only rage and contempt. So if this was its own text, what would it be saying to you? Is that a question for me or for us? Because I, I don't have anything yet. Oh, um, I can tell you what occurred to me. Okay, go ahead. It would be that like this squashy, slippery thing made him value his own life less. It like reminds me of our vision of like the front line in World War One, where like people are dying sort of so haphazardly around you that to some extent you stop valuing your own body. So the context of when we stop valuing ourselves. Yeah, that's fair. I think that that's one possible reading, but there's also something about disjunctive about it. I think that what's interesting when he's running through that scene is that he's in a panic. There are spells flying every which way, but you can see him notice people he loves and cares about as he runs through. And even the stepping on the something squishy is his body noticing, but there's something really isolated about that cry of despair. Like in that moment when he says, kill me then, he has forgotten or is not thinking about all those people who are fighting back there, that they're fighting for him, that he's fighting for them. There's something isolating in his despair that forgets what was happening there. So I'm going to read them now in the other order, which is, Kill me then, panted Harry, who felt no fear at all, but only rage and contempt. His feet met something squashy and slippery on the floor and stumbled. That is so interesting to me. I think that speaks to me of how fleeting these horrible moments are. I think so much of what we were talking about in the theme conversation is like how important the moments of despair are, right? To like feel all the despair of all of the loss of Dumbledore. 
And we want to simultaneously honor those feelings, but also be aware of the fact that they do pass. I mean, something that I just learned was that interventions on like bridges, for example, where a lot of people will jump to kill themselves, if you make it harder for people to jump, those people do not then go and find another way to kill themselves. That often people are despairing in a moment and then an opportunity presents itself where they can do harm to themselves and so they do. But that even just the difference of like 15 minutes will mean that they won't take irrevocable actions. And I think that you know, there's a moment here where Harry is like, I am willing to die. And then that physicality of being alive becomes present and distracting enough for him. That like these moments of grief or of rage in Harry's case are deafening and they can be the only thing we hear. But then the world sort of comes back into our ears. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's two things I'd say about that. I think that I don't know if our grief is temporary, but our affective reaction to our grief is temporary, right? So the the despairing rage where I can't think of anything except is something that can pass if, if time is allowed to let it pass. I like these two sentences better in this order. But I also noticed that you added two words to my quote, which, which help. Right? Oh. You added and stumbled to the end of the squishy, squashy, slippery, right? And I think that's right on this reading. I think this is right in this reverse order because then you have this kind of despair, which meets against the materiality of one's own suffering and the suffering of those that we love. And then his resolve falters. It's enough of a pause. He returns kind of the material world around him in a way or is present to the world around him in a way that causes his resolve to falter and to stumble. So I think it's good that you added the the two words. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
So Matt, it's now time for us to listen to and respond to a voicemail. And this week's voicemail is from Steve. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. I enjoyed listening to your recent podcast on memory while cooking food for the Super Bowl. I was particularly struck when Vanessa mentioned how memory can be weaponized. It made me recall history classes I took in college long ago where I learned about how collective memory can be shaped to serve political ends and maintain power structures. For example, it made me think of Confederate monuments and when and why they were erected and what that impact was and still is. And that made me think, our memories are changeable. Anyways, I finished the podcast and I sat down to watch the Super Bowl when I saw something strange. It was a commercial for Google, and in it, a man uses Google to remind himself of what his deceased wife used to be like, sort of using Google as a pensive, something you pour your memories into and revisit later. And that idea terrifies me, giving control of my memories to something that has its own agenda that sells nostalgia in exchange for my data, something that can think for itself, but I cannot see where it keeps its brain. Our memories are changeable, but we are not always the ones changing them. Anyway, I've just been thinking about that, and so I wanted to share it and see or hear what other people thought. Thank you for this beautiful podcast. I began listening in August of 2016 and binged every episode up until that point and have since eagerly awaited next week's episode to hear what you all think of the text. Thanks very much. Bye. I mean, it's a really interesting question of how our memories are compiled and, and who controls them and how much control we have over them. There's a important French philosopher named Paul Ricoeur, and one thing that he observes is that because all of the past is not retrievable to us. Our minds actually, and our archives actually can't contain all the past. There's no practice of memory, which isn't also a practice of forgetting. Deciding which things to archive is a choice and power is gonna impact that choice. Deciding how to organize the things that we save is a choice and power is gonna control that choice. And how we tell the story of the things that we pull out of the archive is again, always gonna be a form of, in of interpreting the past. So every practice of memory is a form of forgetting. And what he says about that, I think, he's very difficult to understand, but what he says about that is that we shouldn't just throw up our hands and say, oh, therefore, memories are bad. But just that, and maybe this is what's frightening about that Google ad, memory is not a finished process. It's never a finished process. We have to keep telling our stories again, telling them in a different way, allowing others to tell us their stories so we can try to reduce the sorts of forgetting which erase histories and erase people. I think that that is one of the ways that we are living in an exciting time. I feel like for hundreds, if not thousands of years, we were getting one story. And by that, I mean like mass media was getting sort of one story. And we are now for the what feels like the first time in my life getting in mass all of these different stories. I hate a lot about our time, but I love that about our time. Ariana and I recently went to a musical called Six, which was like a story of the six wives of Henry VIII. I was like, oh, my God, how cool is it that we are alive where like these women's stories are attempting to be told again, taking their lives seriously, not just the thing that brought them together in our collective memory, which is the fact that they were married to this one man. I think that's right. I mean, I think part of that is not just recalling forth stories that we haven't been sharing, but it's also acknowledging that the archive 
just doesn't record these stories yeah. and that we have forgotten and just to name that forgetting. But it also points to the kind of what I think is sort of the indispensability of fiction. Toni Morrison has said that a lot of what she wrote, especially like the novel Beloved, is because these stories don't exist in the archive. And so the only recourse we have is to imagine them into being so they can become real for us, so that our practice of memory becomes a way to recall what we cannot remember. Isaac Pesheva Singer said something slightly different but similar in his Nobel speech. He, even though he was fluent in English and Yiddish was really a dead language, more dead than it is now when he was writing. He always wrote his stories in Yiddish. And he said that it was because he was writing for ghosts and liked to picture that they would have something to read when they came back to life. And so, yeah, I think that fiction writers have like a really keen understanding of that. Thank you, Steve, so much for that voicemail. And I think we all agree that that Google ad was creepy. So Matt, we now each have the opportunity to bless someone and I am wondering who you would like to bless. You know, I was thinking about who to bless in this episode. And I just, I keep coming back to Malfoy. I, and I think it partly might, partly might have to do with my son Sam is a Slytherin and loves Malfoy. And we were recently reading this chapter together. And I can see Sam sort of have this internal conflict because this person that he has sort of counterculturally admired is actually getting into some pretty hairy stuff. It's not just schoolboy bad stuff. It's actually pretty disturbing stuff, right? And I just, I want to bless him because I feel like he's really trapped. He cannot make a choice which does not result in the suffering of people he loves or people who should not suffer. I think he knows this, which is why he's so torn and why he seems so broken and scattered throughout this novel. And so for those who are sort of trapped where they have no choices, where the only way forward seems to hurt people um, and they don't know what to do, I think I just have a blessing for Malfoy. You know, I always... A lot of people love Malfoy, including Casper, and I always was like, why? And then watching Sam love Malfoy, I've been like, okay, I love that kid. I want to bless McGonagall because we only see her for a second, but she is fighting. I've probably given a version of this blessing before, but I just want to bless teachers who go into teaching because they want to teach and end up having to do all these things that they shouldn't have to do. Like one, you know, just like make sure kids are eating enough and like they have to be social workers and they have to be all of these other things. And then also nowadays they have to be like taught how to do shelter in place and taught how to handle school shootings and teachers who like really just wanted to go and teach kids and end up being on the front lines of all of these other things. And the just like ridiculous expectations that are put on teachers and how most of them are McGonagall's and rise to it. She has the pressure of the world on her and she's still like, no problem. I will also be a warrior. Matt, thanks for doing a whole episode, especially a second time, just because I forgot to hit a button. It was great to be here again for the second time. (laughs) You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you don't have a local near you, then you can join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about the episode. Or you can come and join the over 2,000 people supporting us on Patreon. You can also leave us a review on iTunes, specifically saying how much you don't miss Casper. Also, please send us an awesome voicemail like Steve did. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 29, The Phoenix Lament, through the theme of power. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Nasari Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are also distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Steve for this week's voicemail, Matt Potts, I guess, Julia Argy, 
Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Matt, you are only the third person ever to, like, really co-host an episode with us. Really? Who are the other two? John Green and Mike Schubert, who are both, like, super famous podcasters. What are you bringing to the table? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just here because you messed up. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I'm riding in on the errors of others, which is, I get to be here at least. That's nice.